of Your Dose, a podcast where we speak to individuals with lived mental health experiences to help people feel less alone and more connected. In this episode, we speak with PhD student Ahad about his research into mental health diagnosis, specifically autism within South Asian communities. We unravel the complex issues that contribute to underdiagnosis and the profound lack of awareness surrounding neurodivergent disorders in South Asian communities, from the role of religion and cultural practices to the expectations of parents and the dominant role of fathers. We also discuss the pervasive stigma surrounding mental health and autism in South Asian communities and the hopeful outlook for the future. Together we explore strategies and interventions that aim to break down these barriers, foster understanding and pave the way for a more inclusive and supportive future for those affected by mental health conditions in the South Asian community. Thank you so much for listening to the episode today. If you are listening and you enjoy the episode, please do remember to follow or even better, leave a review. This really helps to grow the podcast. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Your Dose. Today, we are speaking with Ahad. Hello, Ahad. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Um, interestingly, me and I had went to university together and did our masters, which was quite a long time ago now. I think it's like 2018 now. Yeah, it was a, a very, very long time yeah. ago. Um, and we've been on an well, mainly I've been keeping up with your updates on Facebook, to be honest, because you've achieved quite a lot since then. Okay. So maybe if you want to share with the listeners, actually, so me and I had studied. Um, psychological approaches to health psychology at the University of Leeds and since then I has been on a bit of a journey with psychology so yeah it'd be good if you could share everything yeah. from your master's to now and what you're doing so yeah well thank you for having me by the way so it's really appreciated so after my master's I worked full-time in the forensic services myself so I worked with like offenders that had done like high or to moderate crimes in the environment so I was I was a healthcare worker working in a low secure ward and um, that was for three years full-time How was that? I, it was it was challenging to say the least because I was I wasn't <laughs> yeah. so used to like the environment that I was in because I was so used to working with older adults rather than in the forensic field because I thought I'd try something new out like within psychology and understand like how the role of a forensic psychologist worked and like working with an MDT mm. and stuff so it was eye-opening it was challenging at times but I recognized that I, I was forming that therapeutic relationship with my patients gradually as I progressed in the job like through so after that I did um do my uh, PGC so I did my teaching qualification in post 14 so I was working with students like up to, uh, from 14 onwards so I was working as an A-level psychology teacher yeah. for a year in a college um, and then I moved over to the university sector so I'm now a lecturer um, in psychology in Manchester and then I've now gone to my PhD now so I'm focusing around the autism um diagnosis area so looking at the South Asian community and looking at why parents refrain them refrain their children from getting a diagnosis within this certain like community 
and where the society's evolved. Amazing. So really, really interesting background um, from I had like incredible I didn't quite do that route so I'm a little bit jealous to be honest (laughs) with what you're doing but you've worked so hard and I know that this is something that you've always really wanted to do you've always had the determination and I think if anyone is listening and is studying psychology and thinking about whether it be I mean I had spoken a little bit before this about the doctorate and it is kind of drilled into you that that is the route, the clinical doctorate, um, and it's competitive. And, you know, you were applying for it for quite a few years. I know that some of yeah. our close friends were. And it is a case where you are rejected quite a lot and you have to kind of take that rejection and maybe pivot into something else, which is obviously what you've done and decided to go down the research path, which is still as effective, just maybe a little bit different. Yeah. Um, I think it's sometimes something to know about if you if your listeners are like what like watching or listening at the same time is if you are interested in the psychology field not to just focus on one area and mm. I think sometimes we get so overwhelmed with like that pressure within us like we need to get into that doctor otherwise our degree is valueless or like not yeah. valued in society but at the end of the day like there's so many other pathways that you can take like for me yeah. I applied for my clinical doctorate twice and I got selected for for the test for the first round but I got rejected straight after and then mm. my second round of application was a straight up no so again it's not they don't look at the experience it's more of a Russian roulette I think with clinical psychology is like they yeah. just pick and choose sometimes as to like what candidates want for for their cohort and I think with me is is like having that passion for research and realizing that during my teaching and I thought okay I do would like to I would like to do my research in a further area that I'm interested in so taking that diverted direction in that area was beneficial for me and I don't regret doing that because I can then stay in a career that's stable and I don't have to think about moving jobs or shifting anywhere else or having that pressure of like work and studying at the same time which the doctor does sometimes can can take over that social life so sometimes you don't have that balance yeah so I think that's something to consider if your listeners are like interested in taking yeah. a psychology it, route I think that's really valuable advice um and I and I know personally that so that so many people do just focus on the doctorate but there are so many other routes and you're not a failure if you don't take the the typical route um, um, so back to the research then you're currently researching um, autism diagnosis in the South Asian community specifically Pakistan and Bangladeshi is that right yes um... okay so my first question for you is what is it exactly that led you to focus on this particular topic because it is very specific isn't it yeah I think for for me, because I, I come from a town that is predominantly South Asian, so it's come from, like uh, it's made up of like Pakistani, Bengali individuals, and less uh, white backgrounds. So seeing and observing the people in my town and the the observations I see is that it's quite important for us to talk about that disability, and I think there's so much so much difference in acceptability from a town perspective versus a city perspective because obviously I. I've now teach our city and you can tell the open-minded attitudes that people show in comparison to a town. Mm. Uh, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to do the research is because autism isn't much discussed within the South Asian community, just like mental health sometimes. 
and I think that's purely because of like factors like stigma like or external factors that may hinder their reputation as like a family so for example like um I think that's not this is just subjective to my perception so people may not agree or disagree with it uh but I think it's where it's I think it's where you've been brought up in that community and how acceptable how accepted you are as a unique individual so like mm. for example my family are quite open-minded to that mental health I'm quite happy to talk about my mental health to my family I'm like we all accept that everyone's different and have different pressures but then you have you may have a different family that will not talk about mental health and just think it's something that is non-like mm. like nonsensical or like make-believe in comparison to physical health whereas where, where it's actually seen and identifiable and I think that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to look at autism in this community because there's so much there's it's under researched, especially from the role of the father more than the role of the mother. And I think that's pure because the father takes a step back when it comes to supporting children with mental health and autism. And when it comes to families that have migrated to a like a cosmopolitan country like England from a developing mm. country they see a culture shock and sometimes their culture or their values from the country that they've been born in is then passed down to here and then they can't adapt to the progressive society that we're living in so for example like from a pakistani background like pakistan has like two billion people in that country but there's not enough psychologists it's only like under 500 so it shows that like less than like more than 90 percent of people in that country are like not diagnosed which shows to me like does that country take mental health and disability seriously in comparison to mm. somewhere like here like the UK so that's probably one of the reasons why I really wanted to kind of research this predominant background was to see where the parents thinking patterns have evolved with regards to like autism ADHD mental health and to compare those with like migrant parents who may see this as like an appreciation or more like gratitude to getting those help with for their kids in comparison to a country that isn't take that doesn't take those seriously that's really interesting um something that you mentioned there about specifically was related to dads so you don't think so you think that between in, in the world of parenting it's the it's the father that's typically the problem in terms of they're less open to accept that their child may have a mental health issue compared to the mother. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I think, yeah, yes and no. <laughs> but so with, I think the mother is the primary caregiver for the child. And I think that's like, by all, by no means, like a self, like comparative answer. So like the mother is always the primary caregiver for looking after their kids once they're born. Uh, but when it comes to mental health, mothers are more identifiable when it comes to seeing that something's wrong with their child, when it comes to things like depression, anxiety or a change in their behaviour. And I think when it comes to things like autism and ADHD, Pakistani families, especially like those that don't have enough knowledge and understanding of neurodevelopmental conditions or like neurodiversity in general, they get their child diagnosed later in life as like in their development like lifespan, which makes it harder for them to accept mm. that they have autism so when it comes to like a critical period that they've missed that they've recognized some different signs I think fathers sometimes are in denial that something's wrong because they want to like a perfect child and I think that isn't just specifically focusing on just the Pakistani community it's just 
you want like a perfect child you want something you want a child that has no issues but sometimes individual differences come into play and then you have unique characteristics like neurodiverse like conditions or mental health conditions that sometimes can hinder your perception and I think with fathers it is like with the Pakistani like community like with fathers they can change their identity sometimes with regards to their approach to the child, which means that they may not get treated equally or they may mm. not get favoured as much in comparison to other siblings in the households who are seen as quite neurotypical. So when it comes to the support given, they take a step back and give the mother that reign and that responsibility because they're seen as that caregiver or they're seen as that role there. you are look, looking after your kid like you do that role rather than me who's seen as the masculine figure who takes mm. over like the workload rather than the childcare. and I think that's what I really wanted to focus on is does the father equally contribute now to a diagnosis to getting those children to getting their child a support for autism so yeah I do sometimes believe that fathers that don't have knowledge uh, may not agree with having like a support for the child like a diagnosis but then fathers that may have knowledge education can sometimes reintegrate and adapt and take part in the diagnosis process but again I think the findings are quite mixed and controversial can sometimes with a topic like focusing on a specific culture and like religion can sometimes trigger us like or open a kind of worms so it's mm. sometimes it's so sensitive and when, when someone from that community disagrees with your viewpoint but you shouldn't the thing with me is like researching this topic is as a researcher you shouldn't be criticizing the person you should just be criticizing the statement that you're yeah. making so with me is is like I'm quite impartial sometimes but when it comes to like understanding that topic in a bit more detail the father does take a step back especially when it comes from generational views um, and looking at how religion can sometimes be seen as the only way forward for the child yeah, to get treated I was, I was about to so I was about to mention this because um sorry for being potentially ignorant here no no sorry what is it that you follow what religion do you follow in Islam Islam yeah so um so is it is there any religious factors here that make it is there anything in the Islam religion which stigmatize which would suggest stigmatization towards mental health or disability i think yes and no again uh sometimes the religion is our religion teaches us to be peaceful with anyone and everyone that we we see in society regardless of like orient like sexual orientation disability yeah or just niceness in general like our religion teaches us to be peaceful not like discriminatory yeah but sometimes a lot of people mix religion with culture. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed when it comes to mm -hmm. things like autism and ADHD. Like, for example, like a lot of mothers feel so calm uh, with their religion that they believe that God's given that gift to the child like of autism. So that's really interesting. So they actually see it as a gift to the child yeah. rather than something that could hinder them hinder yeah yeah so some Ooh. researchers some researchers found that a lot of mothers from the pakistani community have found a lot of like tranquility because they always believe that god gives a challenge to like their sort like their soldiers which is also like as disciples like on the earth so they say that if god um has given or oh allah 
that's me saying Islam, is like if we if he gives us that gift, it, we should appreciate it, and it, it motivates the mother to get that support for the child because it's some it's a challenge that Allah's given that ah, to that certain family that we're gonna get uh, themselves treated but they physically don't know that autism isn't treatable it can be stabilized but can't be treated but on the other spectrum uh, a lot of families will believe that culture and religion are interlinked but they're not the two separate things so when it comes to culture we always believe that someone that has a disability we should treat them different well we should treat them differently or we should we should just like out, like outcast them from the family. Not all families, I'm saying, but specific families that may not have, may not, may be ignorant towards mental health or may not feel comfortable in talking about um, unique qualities like autism within the household. So, like, if someone doesn't have enough knowledge, they will believe that um, they need to be cured ASAP. Um, even though autism and ment- uh, autism and mental health don't have a timeline to be cured. It's like depression. So, like, if someone suffers from depression, uh, depression in a Pakistani household, I've had stories where I've had uh, people come up to me and say, "My parents have said, um, just go to sleep, you'll be fine.'" And I'm thinking, like, rather wow. than supporting uh, their child to do, to go to the doctor or go to a psychologist to to see to like to get the tools needed to cope in the environment, they don't. They refrain from getting that support. Wow. And I think that's something that is still stigmatized in this culture because it can hinder factors like marriage. Like if someone is suffering from like autism or depression or anxiety, and if someone finds out in the in, in society as a potential wife or a husband, then the family will stop them from like admitting that they've got a mental health condition just so that they could get married, even though they may have an issue that may hinder their like approach to other people and like interact with them and I think sometimes religion is really interesting and culture is really interesting because we don't really realize how much is going what, like how much is going on when it comes to like, mm. like when it comes to like mental health because a lot of people don't know how each culture is like the Asian culture it will be different to the British culture and mm. sometimes it's so hard to kind of mold yourself into both cultures because you have your own identity for both areas. So like I've got the British culture of like working, earning myself, having a good job and having and having my identity. But then when I'm at home, I have my Asian culture where I'm like being able to like uh, like uh, take part in like Asian events like Eid, Ramadan, things like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's two different like cultures. So it's like being able to appreciate and respect the different cultures but also appreciate the fact that every person in the culture may suffer from mental health and neurodiverse conditions. And I think that's something that isn't respected sometimes in our community because it's not much talked about, especially when it comes to the older generations, like those that have actually discussed mental health a lot. I mean, I think that's kind of, well, that's definitely the same in with British culture. Mm. it's definitely a generational thing I think we're more open to having these discussions now whereas my grandparents they yeah they would probably say if you're depressed oh just get on with it you know go to sleep or you'll be all right tomorrow like and so I think that's definitely something which um transfers into both cultures but what I think is maybe different is is the religion side of it and and obviously it is and with religion and you said that their set culture and religion are separate which i think is really interesting because i would definitely i sometimes get the two mixed up 
Yeah. But something that I asked, wanted to ask you on the topic of religion, um, which I thought was really interesting, was when you mentioned about the how um, in the Asian community, if you because you see um, God, Allah, yeah, as um, this um, you know amazing person that you all look up to, and then you believe that the this is a gift to the child that they've got autism or or whatever it is that they're dealing with. If then the child, they then think, oh, it's okay. This is a gift from God. I'll go and get the di- the, cha- the diagnosis from the child and I'll get the child treated. But then they realize that actually um, autism isn't treatable. There's not much that they can do. Their child is unfortunately going to be like that um, forever. How would that then make, do you know how that could then make the person feel in relation to religion? I think it's controversial, and I think it depends on the the family that you're you're brought up in. And I think one of the things that we don't have control over is who you who your fam like who your parents are, and when mm-hmm. you're like brought up into the world. So, like for example, like if you've got a supportive household and you've got a supportive network, and you know that your child has autism, and as they age, your parents tell you like you're going to be on like some form of medication to stabilize them. You're not going to be like you're not going to be cured it's but it, it is like damaging to the child's mental health at that point in time mm. but if they have a supportive network where the mom and the dad are always reinforcing them that it's everything's going to be okay just go to these sessions and mm. act and and be part of a society that's forever trying to normalize you so I think sometimes mm. in society we try so hard to like normalize everyone as certain categories. Like we make it so homogenous, even though we're so different. Mm. Um, and I think it's so hard to disagree on someone else's viewpoints because they want, like they want them to be part of their group. If that makes sense. Mm. But it's so hard to accept different viewpoints because it's so hard to accept that person's identity at the same time so when it comes to like the child growing up and realizing that all right autism can't be cured it can either go one or one or the other way they can continue with um, therapy or they can continue with counseling and having that supportive network or the other end is that 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 child may grow up to like be distant from the parents especially or and from the religion as well because they, they may see that religion as something that can be a negative consequence for that child as they grow older so they may get distance from god and also from their prayers that give them that that gave them that tranquility as they were getting older through their lifespan so it can go one or the other way and i think sometimes the parents should be a key contributor to that from my perspective as someone from the community but also as as a lecturer myself is being able to accept the child for who they are also reinforcing that to the child that nothing's changed with regards to who you are as a person and regards to whether you have autism or depression or anxiety I'm still going to be there to support you and I think that sometimes gives the child an insight into thinking right religion even though religion has given me or God has given me that condition God's also given me supportive parents at that same time so it's like even though I've got Mm -hmm. something unique within me that I can't change or alter but can stabilise. At least my, my parents are always going to be there through my journey, through recovery and th- 
whenever I am in distress or if there's something overwhelming in that sensitive environment, my parents are always going to be there. But it, but again, we we don't choose our parents. We don't choose who we live with when we're born. As we get older, we do decide to do things ourselves as, as, as adults. But it depends on like how severe your autism is. If you're low functioning, then then you would have to have that 24 hour support from parents or carers. But if you're high functioning, where you can uh, adapt to a society that is very much normalized and neurotypical, then yeah, you can have an independent life and you can have those support networks like your friends and your family at times when you need them. And I think that's something that we need to consider is that autism is such a complex spectrum that it's hard to recognize sometimes, but it can also be hard to uh, support depending upon the severity of the condition. But like I said, mm. I think having supportive parents definitely brings you closer to the religion and also your own uh, willpower. So like your own, your own viewpoints of that religion, like if you don't think that religion has detrimental, has, has detrimented your perception of it, then you'd continue to pray. You'd, you'd ask for like, for you to get better or at least, yeah adapt to that society but again if you don't have supportive parents who have a limited insight into autism or have that ignorant background where I don't want to really do anything with that child or be secluded from the environment that further detaches themselves from the religion because they'll think why did God give me those unsupportive parents and also giving me a condition it would be yeah um which is obviously difficult if your life is very much revolved around religion and then you kind of have to question it um so you've spoke a lot about autism which i want to go back to Mm -hmm. um but something that i wanted to ask you was around um other mental health conditions in the south asian community um and actually just which ones you think are the most prevalent if you know the answer to that i don't really know the prevalence but i do know the fact that a lot of um people from the South Asian community do suffer from depression and do suffer from anxiety. Um, And I think that's purely because of how the family dynamics are run within the household in a South Asian family. people can't speak about their problems, is do you think that's what it is? You've got to bottle it in um, because it's so stigmatised and they won't get the support if they do speak up. Yeah. Exactly. Um, um, it's that is that to be fair, and I think is like I think a lot of people don't realize is that a, a South Asian household is so different to, for example, like a white household, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that's purely because we, luckily, like my family, I'm so fortunate to have such a supportive family. Like they've let me do everything. They've got. They've let me like study. They've let me like get to where I want to be. They let me yeah. do like they let me travel like everything like that. I've got such a supportive family network that I'm so thankful that like I've got this family. But some families are unfortunate to have parents that are really strict, and I think sometimes I've I, like I've heard stories where my like where parents have like um not let their kids go to university. They've not let their kids go to work. They've not and let. What's the reason behind not doing those things? And I think that's again culture. So they're always mixed culture with religion. Um, so, for example, like they won't let females go to work. They won't let females go to university because of the fact that they're going to be mingling in with like males that aren't like, that they are married really? to. Yeah. So, and I think 
that is the difference between a British household and sometimes an Asian house, a South Asian household, is the fact that you you can't like you can't predict who you get when you when like who you get raised with when you're born. So it's like uh, some families are really strict in their practices, like religious practices. Um, so for example, like some families may not even have a television in their household, things like that, because they get might get exposed to things that may be inappropriate or go against their religion. And I think with wow. children that are seen as the next millennials or like the current millennial that we are looking at like now, that are seen as quite progressive, uh, they will suffer from depression and anxiety because parents have restricted them from doing so much, like being independent and just staying in the house, not doing anything, and also like making choices for them rather than giving the choices to to them. So, and I think that's something that needs to be addressed. And I think that's that's leading to things like suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, because your parents are stopping you from becoming who you are as a person and using their values that they've been taught previously, like in the 20th century, for instance, and then bringing those values now in a progressive society where it doesn't work now like you that we're exposed to males and females like all the time so being like stopping your child from working um, and going to university because you're going to mingle in with the opposite gender it's just shocking to see because even though yeah religion says you're not meant to be talking to someone of the opposite gender that is um that you're not married to but society will think that is unacceptable so it's very much controversial in that aspect. So you have households that can do that and can restrict your practices and things like that. And I think that's purely because of narrow-minded behaviour and also that ignorant knowledge and that religious knowledge, like women should be in the house, staying in the kitchen, cooking and cleaning, whereas the males should be working. But it's not like that anymore. No. So you're so society, the societal norms in now in in Britain for example are very different mm. to those societal norms so you can see how that can be that that can be that controversy yeah um, definitely do you have any friends who like have close to you that have suffered with mental health issues yes like I've had friends that have suffered from mental health conditions but they, they were always afraid to talk about it because of the fact that they may get judged by it if that makes sense. So, for example, like, I've had friends... Uh, so they've had... Um, like, I've had friends that have suffered from, like, depression, anxiety, and they've come to me for, like, advice. And I think that's purely because I'm just a psychology teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we've just... We've got some base knowledge on it. I only say to them, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, by the way, so don't... Don't, <laughs> don't go messaging out for any, any psychological support. I'm just a teacher. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, but I think with me, I think with my friends is like they see us as like that support network. And I think that sometimes they feel like, why isn't my family not listening? Why are my friends doing the job that my parents should be doing? Um, like, like I said, luckily for me, like if I've been down or low, I've always gone to my mum and dad. Like they've always listened. They've always supported me on that. Like, for example, when I'm stu- like when I used to be studying, I used to say to my like, mum and dad, like, I'm feeling really low today and my mum and dad have always supported me and said like just take a break and if you want to chat to me you can chat to me and at one point I think I was about to drop out of my master's <laughs> because I was like suffering for so like I was like experiencing so much so much low mood that my mom, I think my mum and dad was like do you want to drop out like 
like because your mental health comes first and I said no I want, I want to finish it and I, I think I'm thankful for my mom and dad for pushing me to get to where I want to be because yeah. otherwise I wouldn't I wouldn't be here now like it could be I, completely different couldn't it you could have ended up with really unsupportive parents um, yeah and who knows whether you would e- you would have even done the teaching and be on the PhD course yeah so it really does go to show how important your um upbringing and environment exactly. is exactly and I think I've had I've got friends that are fortunate to have parents that have supported them. But then I've also had friends that are unfortunate to be like where they are sometimes refrain from talking about it because they feel like they're going to get judged by their comments. Um, so going to their friends was it would was seen as like a safe zone for them. But again, like I said, we don't really choose who who no. brings those up into society we can make our decision when we're older but throughout that time and sometimes the damage has already been done by yeah. the point that you know we we both know from um from the psychology degree that, that a lot of who we are is based on those childhood experiences exactly um so i had a question for you around the mental health professionals and organizations and what you think they can better do to support the South Asian community? Yeah, um, predominantly, I think, psychology. We were having this debate in our lecture, actually. Uh, We were saying how diverse psychology has become, or is it still needing to become diverse? The answer is definitely yes, it does need to be very, it needs to be diverse. And I think historically, psychology is very Eurocentric. So what I mean by that is it's just predominantly white, uh, middle-class females and males in a field that may not understand other communities like the South Asian background or like Far East Asian background or like, you know, other backgrounds like the Spanish background, for instance, that may not understand their culture and values. So like when it comes to psychologists and therapists, we always mm-hmm. see that it's a working class female or a, a, or a white male. We never see like a minoritized psychologist or a therapist like black Pakistani, Indian, Chinese, yeah. we never see them or we hardly ever and see them. And why do you think that is? Because is it because it, is it racist or is it the fact that maybe people within those, obviously you're an exception here, but maybe is it a people within those communities wouldn't study that course because they're less aware of it? And, and like I studied psychology because I'm experiencing mental health issues myself and because I'm just find it's the brain the mind everything so interesting that's why I studied it if you hadn't been able to ex if you didn't know that you're experiencing a mental health issue hadn't experienced a mental health issue and had never been brought up to talk about feelings to talk about mental health would you be passionate about studying psychology probably so I don't know is that is that something that's maybe a factor in why or do you think it's more than that? I think there could be more to why the selection process is so rigid and so, like, what should I, I don't know how to describe it. So um, you think it's more a case on who's been selected rather than who um, actually studies to be a psychologist or a therapist? You think it's actually the selection process? I think it's the selection process, personally. Right. interesting. So I, you do think there's some, there is some potential racism in that? I think, uh, well, they have, it, they did some research on uh, 
the doctoral programme in clinical psych in 2020, and they did find some institutional racism anyway. Wow. Within the within the course, and I think sometimes it's de- damaging to an ethnic minority person that is so passionate in making a change. I can't remember what the research was, but I did read something about institutional racism in the clinical psychology programmes, which then demotivates candidates from ethnic minorities to apply. So, for example, like I think there was only about 5% of minority applicants that applied, but only about 3% got successful. So that's such a low number. This mm. may be approximate. I don't physically know the actual stats, but I think it's around that area. Uh, but it just shows that how much people get put off by the profession because of the fact that how many times do I need to apply to get to where I want to be in comparison to someone that's from a white female background that has the same experience but then got on on the first time. Mm. So it's very much like, what does the course want from me? Do I do I need to change my skin colour? Do wow. I need to do I need to change my orientation? So for example, oh, my people, culture, oh my you know, my background yeah, and my religion like, and stuff yeah. like that. Because um, they say that a lot of heterosexual individuals on the clinical psychology program get less selected in comparison to LGBTQ. So it's that's quite interesting to see as well, like how a heterosexual male or female may not get as selected as someone from the LGBT and community. When you were filling in your application, did you mm-hmm. have to make it them aware yeah. as to yeah. whether you were straight? Get... Yeah. So people may then lie on their application form to be accepted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wally. Um, so in terms of, because there may be people, list, I don't know, obviously based on my listeners, I know a lot of them are UK based, which... Um, I'm really trying to change and get lots more people from around the world listening to this. Um, but I don't know how many people who listen are from different minorities. Um, so maybe there is a you know somebody that's listening who is within the South Asian community or maybe has a friend in the South Asian community who is struggling, maybe not specifically with autism, but a mental health issue. Um, obviously, you're very, you haven't even really started the research yet, but you're going into the research. This is something that you're really interested in. Um, what advice would you give to that person, whether whether it be themselves or it may be their friend or family member who is struggling with a mental health issue um, and maybe doesn't know how to access support or, you know, is struggling? What is the advice that you would give them? I think uh, the one advice I would give them is don't shy away from speaking out. And I think that's very much easier said than done, yeah. especially when you're coming from a very much minoritized background where mental health is very much suppressed in mm. some in some instances. When it comes to support, I think if you are a student, going to your personal tutors, going to your lecturers, who you feel comfortable with speaking to. Like I've had students that have spoken about their like experiences and I've referred them. Uh, because they felt they felt comfortable doing that so if you are a student from a minoritized background that feels comfortable speaking out about an experience that you can't do from home um as adults uh you we don't tell your parents about your experience because you're an adult we don't have to do that we don't have to break that confidentiality we only do it if it's actually necessary Mm -hmm. Uh, so being an adult and talking to your lecturer 
uh, Alicia will be really insured to the fact that no one else will find out about your situation, just the safeguarding team. And I think coming from a Pakistani background that everyone may experience an episode of like depression, anxiety, like panic attacks, things like that during your journey. I think speaking to your friends as well, that you also feel comfortable with. And I think it's not just talking to your academics or your tutors. It's having that sort that supportive network where you do feel comfortable talking about it. You may have like a best friend that you may feel comfortable going to for advice. Like you don't have to tell all your friend circle, but someone that will be willing to yeah. listen to you and yeah. give that support. And I think that's some advice that I would like to give to students or people from this community. I even commute like people in the general population really is yeah. don't shy away from your mental health because at the end of the day your your health is your wealth at the end of the day mm. because you're not going to work to your full potential if your mental health and your physical health is that is drained um, and I think that's something to consider because we'll work, we're in a society where it's so working class we're constantly working we also we're just going home and then repeating the same process but not giving our bodies a rest so mm. having that time for yourself and having that self-care routine and talking to your friends about situations that you may feel worried about and asking for advice uh, is is key for having that good balance and I yeah. think sometimes we as a community feel really scared about talking about anything personal to someone else mm. and I think that's pure because we just think like what will my parents say if I talk about or open up about my mental health because we shy we always link it back to our family upbringing rather than our own perceptions of the world around us so that's probably one of the reasons why we stop talking about uh, or we stop talking about our own self and think about what will our family think yeah so I think what you know one of the main things I've taken from that is to just be an individual and don't exactly. be don't be linked uh and bonded to your family because their views are probably going to be very different to your views and that's okay yeah um and if that means not going to your family which is obviously difficult and that's sad that they can't do that try and find the next best person and if that's not a friend maybe it's like you said a lecturer if you're at work maybe it's a work colleague um maybe you feel comfortable to go to your manager and obviously explain what's going on as well if it's affecting your work um and obviously you know maybe it's ringing someone like mind or samaritans or shout or any of these services that are available because they can also offer some great support um but I think we're kind of coming to the end of the podcast and oh. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking to I you enjoyed that. more yeah. about this. It's been so, so interesting. I was a bit nervous when we were going into this because I was like, I don't know too much about this topic. Am I going to know what to ask? But I feel like we've covered so much um, and you're obviously so passionate about this topic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wish you all the best with your oh, PhD, you so which you start on Thursday. I do next week. Is that right? And so what is it that you want to get out of this research if there, if there could be like best case scenario from this research what like what would you find and, and what, what would you like to do with it I'm hoping to find some like themes of acceptability and social belonging so I want to find out if parents from 
this these communities accept the child for who they are and accept them for who they are, which isn't a common theme that I've found in previous research. So I'm hoping to find these things out and predominantly in the near future, I'd like to see people's thinking patterns change mm. with regards to mental health and disabilities and neurodiversity. And I think that's something that I really want to see because there's so much negativity when it comes to these aspects. And there's so much like inequality when it comes to like support in education, support when it comes to that like, family that dynamics. So when it when doing the this research like in th- like in this coming three years, I do want to see parents like supporting their child and just accepting them as an individual rather than something that's seen as like a nuisance or something as an inconvenience. So hoping mm. that could be I could see that. <laughs> well, I think that will definitely happen um and phd's three years is that right yes so it's a lot of research a lot of time spent on it so and it sounds like it's something that you're so passionate about so i think i think if you if you continue with that passion you'll definitely find some interesting um research from it and and hopefully be able to utilize it in the future which would be amazing and what's the plan after are you going on to do lecturing or continue with the teaching or do you just or do you not know yet I'm hoping to stay in the job I'm in now um, and move and work my way up in the career ladder because the job I'm in is lovely I love it Uh, everyone's really supportive so I'm hoping to complete my PhD and hopefully stay on as a lecturer and then work my way up and just continue researching alongside my lecturing. Amazing. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Oh, thank you. Hopefully I can have you on this um, maybe in a year's time again to see where you're at, some of the findings, course, and whether you've yeah, made definitely. any progress with this research because it's really, really interesting. Um, and, you know, there may be people listening from the South Asian community. If you are listening... Uh, please do fill out the what did you think of this episode and give I had some feedback around some of the things that you've spoken about today uh, about mental health within the South Asian community but thank you so much I had and I will speak to you soon thank you thank